and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, good morning, Bent Tree family and friends. So glad that you're here with us today, this morning, as we worship God. Uh, just incredible time of worship. Uh, my name is Paul Trimble. I'm the senior pastor here at Bentry. So if you're new, a very special welcome. I would love uh, just to meet with you. I, I I'm, will be outside after the gathering. Would love to shake your hand. If you've got your Bible, let's go ahead and open those things up to the Gospel of John. Chapter 3, as we continue in our series titled, So That You May Believe, it's been said that the Gospel of John is shallow enough that the most infant believer can crawl into it and not drown. And yet, at the same time, the most spiritually mature believer, the best theologian, the most advanced can, can go into it and not reach the depth. Do you know what I mean? I've certainly experienced that personally on both ends. I I love the book of John because it is what I think of as the Mount Everest of Scripture. There are other huge books, not taking anything away from them. Books like Romans and Hebrews, all of them. I love those. We'll climb those mountains too, Lord willing, if we get out of this series before Jesus comes back. But this massive mountain of John, scripturally, that we can, we carefully climb verse by verse, looking for handholds, footholds, what it means to be saved by Jesus. So much of John is Jesus carefully explaining what a relationship with him is about, what eternal life is all about. And I use that word careful, carefully, because when we say that we we want to climb this mountain, I don't want you to miss a single word or meaning here. Because these words, these meanings that I believe that the Holy Spirit of God wants us to to shape and mold us into the creation that God intended us to be with Scripture. Now we use this term here, we go deep to grow deep. Or if you want to say it a little differently, we go deep in our study of Scripture so that we can grow deep roots in Christ Jesus. To build our faith. Now, please don't misunderstand me. The goal is not to just have more knowledge about God, that we just put it in our head, but understanding who God is in the revealed truth of the Bible to grow our relationship with with Jesus. And throughout that relationship, that we can better understand how to love God and love each other, which is not always easy, right? And it's in loving those around us, loving God more, that we will bring glory to God. And that's what we're here for. We want to glorify our Father. Well, let's dive deep into our text today. But first, would you close your eyes, bow your head for just a moment in reverence as we go to God in prayer. And you just lift up your own prayer. I'll pray for us. God, our Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you move in this place and in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Come and speak to us today. Lord, there are baby Christians hearing my voice, some with some spiritual growth, some even mature Christians, but God, no matter where we're at, would you take us deeper to a better place of knowing you. Grow our roots deep into you, Jesus. Help us to grow deep in that relationship with you. We want to know you, God. And for those hearing my voice today, God, as we preach through John 3, those that are lost, we pray that you save them. Help me to disappear behind the meaning of the text today. May your word be made much of. It is in the name of Jesus Christ. We all prayed and said, amen. Well, where we left off last time, after Jesus had just told Nicodemus that to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born what? Again, Nicodemus had made the point that that's not possible, Jesus. I can't crawl back into my mother's tummy. And the last three weeks, we've looked at what Jesus told Nicodemus. And we can sum that up by saying, just like our physical conception and birth, our spiritual birth is the same. 
You didn't have anything to do with your conception, your physical birth, and you were just born. Jesus is saying, just like that, your spiritual birth is something that happens to you, not something you cause to happen. And Jesus says that being born of the water and of the Spirit is this cleansing instituted by the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells Nicodemus, the wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus says, flesh is born of what? Flesh. Or in other words, sinful mankind, we can only produce another generation of sinful mankind. And Spirit is born of what? Spirit, meaning that only the Holy Spirit can bring about that new birth in Christ Jesus. We spent the last three messages on this text because it's just so packed full of deep spiritual meaning that can change us. And I mean that. Now don't worry if you're not getting all of this, if it's not making sense. We're climbing this mountain together. It will make sense. The Holy Spirit will reveal things to you. Keep studying it. Keep climbing verse by verse. Don't, don't lose your grip. Because it didn't, it didn't make sense to Nicodemus at first either. And you've got to think, this is the leading teacher of Israel. The most educated, biblically person alive at the time. Other than Jesus who wrote the Bible. The, the thing is, sometimes in order to learn the right doctrine... Listen close. You have to unlearn wrong doctrine. Wrong thought. And for me, in this area of doctrine, it took a willingness to let go of what I had been taught all of my life, life and what I believed for so long and what I had literally preached to people. I believed so long and then carefully look at Scripture alone As my source of truth. That's what I want you to do. Just look at scripture alone. I was so prideful in my understanding of what it meant to be saved. I had to let go of that. One of the reasons we go verse by verse here. And not skip hard verses. That might not make sense at first. Uncomfortable verses. We don't want to miss anything. If you're new to Bent Tree. We wrestle with stuff. We do. We want to understand what God has for us. The whole message. Well, if you would, stand if you can. Stand in reverence for the word of God. I'm going to read. We just do this as an act of worship. Just like your singing is a physical act of worship. Raising your hands or clapping physical act of worship. We'll do that now. You listen carefully as I read it. John chapter 3, starting in verse 9. How can these things be, asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things, Jesus replied? Truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But you do not accept our testimony. If I had told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Praise God for your word, Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's begin to unpack what the Lord wants us to learn here. There is so much that we need to get down. Nicodemus doesn't get it yet, right? That's what verse 9 is all about. He does later on, and we'll see that in the future chapters, but, but here, not yet. So watch what Jesus does. He asks a question. Look at verse 10, the first part of it at least. Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? You'll notice Jesus uses this type of teaching a lot all throughout all four of the Gospels. And especially the book of John. He asks a question. And remember, when Jesus asks a question, he's not looking for information. He's God. He knows it all. No, Jesus asks a question so that we, his hearers, will ask the question of ourselves. Now, scholars tell us the 
that the use of the word teacher of Israel probably means that Nicodemus is this well-known office holder as the top theologian in all of society at that point. This guy knows the scripture, probably has the first five uh, books of the Old Testament memorized. I mean that. This guy knows the scriptures, but he doesn't understand them. Now, here's a clue for us, because just because you know Scripture, and even maybe you have it memorized, doesn't mean that A, you understand it, or B, that you have been born again, or C, that you have any relationship with God whatsoever. So how do you take just knowledge of the Scripture and move that into a saving relationship with Jesus? Jesus begins to answer that question here at the end of verse 10. Look at the second half or just after the first couple of words or um, the first couple of words of the very end of the verse there. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. I want us to to take note of something here in Jesus' response. Let's take some study on your part. It begins with, truly I tell you, the singular, and then it moves to the we, the plural form. Do you see that in your Bible? When we study Scripture, we always want to ask those basic questions. Who's talking? Who's it talking about? What are they talking about? Who is this addressed to? First, the you here, Y-O-U. Jesus is referring to. Well, Nicodemus, yes, but what you may not know is if you read this in Greek, it's not singular. In Greek, the word you is now plural. It just switched. So he's talking about yous guys, right? Yous guys, if you're from the north or Canada, if you're from the south like me, it's y'all. I'm going to talk to y'all now. Jesus is talking about all these religious leaders of that day. And in fact, I think he's talking about all the Hebrew people that were waiting for the promised Messiah, promised from the Old Testament. Because remember back in chapter 1 of John, when the apostle John said this, verse 11 of chapter 1. Now, I added Jesus here when you see that in red. That's me. He, Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. God's Chosen people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, did not receive him, even though they knew the scriptures and were watching for the Messiah. Why? Because they were dead in their sins. Their spirit was dead, unable to connect to God in a saving relationship. They had not been born again. They had not been regenerated. So who is the we then Jesus is referring to if the you is the Israelites? Look again at the last part of verse 10. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. Now, who is the we Jesus is referring to? Is it the disciples here that that represent the we? Possibly, possibly, but they don't necessarily think so. Here's why. I personally think that Jesus is referring to the Trinity, the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God represented in three persons. But it was Jesus and his disciples who were literally going around the countryside preaching the good news of the gospel that said that although you were lost in your sin, headed to hell, eternal punishment, there was salvation and forgiveness for all those who would believe in faith in Christ Jesus. So how did they become born again and redeemed? How did the disciples get born again and redeemed? Well, let's look back to one more time to chapter 1, verse 11 and 12 and 13. The Apostle John says this. This is the Apostle John. He, Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh, Or of the will of man, but of God. Now, do you see this? 
Do you see this? Jesus is just pointing out once again that even though these religious leaders were all well-educated in the Hebrew scriptures, and even though they were blood-kin Israelites, it takes the will of God to call someone to become a child of God, not the will of man. Do you see that? Plain as, as day. Now, we'll dive deeper into this, but you've noticed something here, haven't you? Jesus is pointing out something that all of Scripture, I mean Genesis to Revelation, tells us, and that is this. God's sovereignty to whom he saves does not diminish man's guilt and responsibility for his own sin. This is deep, brothers and sisters. God's sovereignty to whom he saves does not diminish Man's guilt and responsibility for his own sin. Or to say it another way, the word of God has two rails. The word of God has two rails that form a track that go all the way through scripture. Genesis to Revelation. Now, God willing, we're going to address this one in depth next week. So make sure you don't miss that. It's going to change your life. It has mine. I'm serious as I can be on that. Because this is the main sticking point for most people's minds. One rail that says God is sovereign in who he saves and draws them to spiritual life from death. And the second rail is man is still responsible for his own sin even though he cannot save himself. Now remember... Jesus' disciples and those that are with them, they're not well-educated guys. They were not particularly smart or wealthy or well-connected. But they had begun to follow Jesus as the Christ. Why did they do that? Because they had been given faith to believe by God. They had been regenerated, born again, by the Spirit of God. Jesus says we testify about what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but do you, but you do not accept our testimony. Again, the you Jesus is referring to here too is all the, the Jews, all the religious leaders, but they don't believe it, do they? Why not? They're spiritually blind. They're deaf. They are dead in their sins, unable to respond. Jesus drives this point home in verse 12. He says, if I've told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? Nicodemus doesn't believe what Jesus is telling him, does he? He could not fathom the earthly truth of the new birth Jesus was talking about. He said, that's the earthly truth. And not to mention the deep heavenly realities that a relationship with God through the Son entails. Write this down. Being born again is just the beginning of the relationship with God. Being born again is just the beginning of the relationship with God. Why do I say that? Because so many of you I'm locking eyes with right now think that's the case. You think, and it's the end result So many people view it as as the end result. No, no, no. It's the beginning. It's the starting line. There's so much more that God wants to teach us. And he wants to grow you into a person. But let me just say this with love. Some of you be stuck. There's so much more that God wants to teach us. I mean, think about, let's just talk about the heavenly things Jesus is referring to. Here with Nicodemus. He says, you don't get the heavenly thing. I mean, the earthly things. You're not going to get the heavenly things. There's tons, but let's just take a, a peek at the deep heavenly things that Jesus will get to in chapter 7 uh, of the Gospel of John. Chapter 17, I'm sorry. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. This is going to blow your mind if you've never read this. So hold on to your seat. Jesus is praying at this point to God the Father for his disciples, he prays in John 17, verse 6, I, Jesus, have revealed your name to the people you, God the Father, gave me from the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, don't worry, we're going to get to this in detail. I just want you to give you a little taste, just a little taste of the glory, right? Yes, that's nacho. All right, notice Notice, Jesus reveals God's name to the people that God gave 
him from the world. These are the deep heavenly things. These people God gave to Jesus, Jesus said, Father, they were yours. You gave them to me. And then what did they, the people that do? They have kept your word, Jesus said. They have obeyed the word of God, the Bible. Oh, I can't stop. We got to go a little bit deeper. A couple more minutes on this. All right. Remember, this is the heavenly things. We're just giving a little taste, right? When did God the Father give Jesus these people Jesus is praying for? The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 verse 4. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless and love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us, the beloved ones. Now talk about some deep stuff. Now let me read that scripture again, but I want to add the names in with the pronouns, the little red letters, right? So you listen very carefully this time. Ephesians 1, 4. For he, God the Father, chose us, his people, in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in love before him, God the Father. He, God the Father, predestined us, his people, to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, God the Father, according to the good pleasure of his, God the Father's will. To the praise of his glorious grace that he, God the Father, lavished on us, his people, In the beloved one, Jesus. Praise God. Amen. This is gold as we try to understand the deep things of God. You can get this. You can get this. Okay, listen to the Apostle Paul talk in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9. Paul says, he, talking about Jesus, has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose, and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Now, let me read that again with those red pronouns filled in. Think critically about this. He, Jesus, saved us, his people, and called us, his people, with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his, God the Father's, own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Okay, let's get back to on track. We'll, we'll get to this stuff, I promise. Cool? It's cool? I promise as we move through Jesus' teaching, we'll climb this mountain handhold by handhold, foothold by foothold, verse by verse. But back to what Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about. Look again at verse 12, chapter 3 of John. Jesus says, if I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe me, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? It's like Jesus is saying to old Nick here, Nick, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth, Nick, right? Well, at least not yet, because we, like we talked about before, the Holy Spirit of God will overcome Nicodemus' unbelief. That's what that doctrine we talked about last week, the irresistible grace of God or the sovereign call of God. Just a note here, remember back to the last time when we talked about this last week, irresistible grace doesn't mean that we don't resist God and resist coming to God in full surrender. I mean, what it means though is that when the time comes, God will overcome our resistance to the gospel. Praise God. Because I've resisted a lot. With Nicodemus, there's two sides of his unbelief here. With his mind, he had already said that Jesus was a teacher sent from God. You remember way back in verse 2, he said that? But he was still unwilling to accept that Jesus was God. But remember, Nick is dead spiritually. So the second side of unbelief is that he can't yet admit he is a sinner. Helpless to save himself. In Nick's sinful pride, Nick can't let go of the idea that he 
can somehow save himself if I know enough stuff. If I'm a good enough person, because of letting go of that idea would mean that he would have to humble himself and that he would have to admit that he was indeed a sinner in spiritual darkness, that he needed true salvation and righteousness that only Jesus could give him. And Jesus goes on in this indictment of not just Nicodemus, but really with all of the Israelites. Jesus makes this truth claim here. Verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, Jesus is clearly talking about himself when he says Son of Man. What is he saying? He is the Son of God. That's what he's saying. And also the Son of Man. Fully God, and yet at the same time fully man. Both natures, one person. That's Jesus. But as we've seen in chapter 1 of John, although Jesus is the Son of God, he is also God himself. That is a truth claim Jesus is making. What I mean is that he is either who he claims to be or he's not. There's no in-between here. By the way, if you're not a believer in Christ Jesus, like one way or another, you've got to deal with this. And you go, no, I don't. And I say, yes, you do. And you say, no, I don't. I say, yes, you do. And I'm right. Because even if you don't believe, you will come down. You'll either believe he is God or you won't. There's no in-between. You've got to ask yourself this question. Is Jesus telling the truth that he is, in fact, God? Okay, now, for this next part, verse 14, I'm going to need to give you some background just to fill you in so you understand what Jesus is talking to with Nicodemus. Because remember, Nicodemus knows the Hebrew Scriptures well. What we call the Old Testament. Here's the background. After the Lord had set his people, the Hebrews free from Egyptian slavery, he began to lead them across the Red Sea. Remember, he divided the Red Sea. He leads them through the desert wilderness to the promised land. Numbers 21, verse 4. Look at this event. Then they set out from... Mount Hor, by the way of the Red Sea, to bypass the land of Edom, but the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against Moses, God and Moses. Why have you led us out from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. The people then came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. You get the picture here? The people, the Hebrews, had rebelled, complained against God and Moses. And what does God do? God himself sends poisonous snakes that bite and even kill some of the Hebrews. The people come to Moses in a panic and they say, intercede for us, pray for us. Moses does. What does God tell Moses to do? Watch closely to sculpt a bronze snake out, a snake out of bronze and to mount it on a pole, something like a cross, and then to raise it up. When people looked up and saw the bronze snake, they recovered from the snake's poison. Let's get some facts down in our minds. What do we know? First, people are guilty of their sin against God and Moses. That's what we know of the story. They were complaining against God and Moses, both. Second, the serpent on the pole is not to prevent people from being bitten. It's for people who are already bitten and are currently dying from the poison. These people will die without immediate intervention from God. And some, they had already died from the poison. Third, The snakes were sent by God to punish people for their sin. Fourth, God chooses the means of rescuing the people 
from his own curse and wrath with a symbol, check this out, of the wrath itself. The snake made of bronze. Now this is going to make sense. Fifth, to be saved from God's wrath, all the people have to do is to what? Look at the provision hanging on the pole. Believe. Now here's what we know about the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. It's types and shadows all pointing to Jesus. Every single bit of it. There are foreshadowings all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, some that'll just blow your mind. Pictures of what Jesus would do in the redemption of his people, and this is a big one. This is a doozy. So back to Nicodemus and Jesus talking that night about being born again. Out of all the Old Testament passages, isn't it interesting that Jesus chose to compare himself to a serpent, a snake? The creature that Satan had used to tempt Adam and Eve into the first sin. Because since that first time, the snake has always been a symbol of evil, of sin. Moses lifted up the bronze serpent. And when people looked at it, they were saved from the poison in their bloodstream. What is Jesus wanting us, wanting Nicodemus to see in this comparison to him in this Old Testament story? Look at verse 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. First, Jesus is the Son of Man. That's Jesus' favorite name for himself in all of the Gospels. Now write this down, write this down. Jesus is pointing to his own crucifixion and death. They're going to nail him to the cross and lift him up. He's going to be attached to a pole. Jesus is pointing to his own crucifixion and death. Second, like the snake, Jesus has been lifted up as the means God has provided to deal with the poisonous effects of sin and avoid God's wrath. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, let's read that again with our little red pronouns. Shall we? Here we go. He, God the Father, made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin for us. His people, so that in him, Jesus, we, his people, might become the righteousness of God. Although Jesus had never sinned, he became sin. Why? So that we could have our sins paid for and be given his righteousness. Oh, please get this. In short, he offers to face our death, our suffering, our pain, For those who receive him by faith so that we could receive a relationship with him and receive eternal life. Write this down. Jesus is the only source of eternal life. Jesus is the only source of eternal life. There is no other. There can't be. Now, Moses lifted up the bronze snake in the desert, right? But Moses is not the source of the life then or now. No, he's not. The way Jesus is setting this up for Nicodemus is that the Son of Man must be lifted up so that the people will look to Jesus for healing from the poison, the sin in their lives. Do you get the comparison Jesus is making here? But who is going to lift Jesus up on the cross? Don't let me confuse you here, but it's the Pharisees, the ruling council of the Jews that Nicodemus is a part of. They're going to be the ones that actually cause Jesus to be crucified. Now, the Romans crucify him, but they're the ones that bring the charges and force Pilate's hand. Listen to what Jesus tells the Pharisees in John 8, 28, second half of that verse. When you lift up the Son of Man himself, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own. The you that Jesus is referring to here is the Pharisees. That's who he's talking to. 
In this comparison, Jesus is making the point here from Moses. The Pharisees stand in the place of Moses, lifting up the snake, lifting up Jesus on the cross. All right, back to the book of Numbers. Moses is not the one saving the people who are snake bit. It is God who is doing the saving by having the people look at the bronze serpent. And here in John 3, God again is doing the saving of his people by sacrificing his son, Jesus, on the cross. Write this down. Jesus becomes the curse of sin. Some of you have never heard this. You need to get this down. Jesus becomes the curse of sin. Let's look again what the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 13, a familiar verse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, a pole. This is literally how Jesus redeems us from our sins we're guilty of. Are you getting this? It's important you understand this. Like the snake being lifted up and the people looking to the snake to be healed, Jesus becomes the curse of sin for us so that when he becomes the embodiment of our sin and the embodiment of the curse of sin, he takes sin and nails it to the cross. He kills sin. Sin is crucified, killed that day for his people that look in faith to him. So you've got to get this down. You've got to get this down. Jesus becomes the giver of eternal life at that point. Jesus becomes the giver of eternal life. Notice that Jesus is not a giver of temporary life. Not life for six years or his life as long as you're good enough. Jesus will hold his end of the bargain Not for a hundred years. It's eternal life. When Jesus gives eternal life, that means it starts right now. Look again at what Jesus says in Nicodemus to Nicodemus in chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus hears all of this and his mind is blown away he doesn't get it remember what Jesus is talking about is being born again regeneration that's the conversation Nicodemus doesn't get it yet he's not born again here but he will be later on so if the Holy Spirit of God is the one who calls people to life in Christ Jesus what do we say to spiritually dead people spiritually blind people this We tell them the story of who Jesus is, the Son of God. We tell them that he came to die to pay for the sins of those who would believe. We tell them of the cross, of the suffering to pay for those sins. And we tell them of the righteousness of Jesus' life, that he was the perfect sacrifice for sin. We tell them that on the third day after his crucifixion and death, he was raised back to life by the Father. We tell them that he lived and worked another 40 days after his resurrection and then was taken back into heaven with the promise to return and take his people home to heaven with him. Amen? Just like Jesus does with Nicodemus here in this conversation, even though Nick is spiritually dead, we share the gospel message with the spiritually dead. Knowing that it is God that has to open the eyes of the spiritually dead, the spiritually blind, to see the truth of who Jesus is. It is the Holy Spirit of God that wakes people from spiritual death, not us. Our job is to deliver the message of the gospel and leave the results to God, period. The crucified Christ is the one we look to and live. The crucified Jesus is the one we look to and live. We look to Jesus. 
Jesus himself says at the end of verse 15, everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. There's so much I want to say to you right now. But for those of you who are not Christians, look up here. Just give me your attention for just a moment. We all have been bitten by the poison snake of sin. We are quite literally born into that poison. It's in our bloodstream. Listen to me. If you die with that poison in your bloodstream, your penalty is on you for all eternity. Conscious eternal punishment in hell. Pastors are chicken to tell you this. Because you may look at me and go, oh, that's crazy. Nobody believes in hell. I do. And so does Jesus. Conscious eternal punishment from God for your sins. No one else's sins, your sins. But God has made a way for you to be healed of that poison by simply looking to Jesus lifted on the cross in faith to believe that Jesus, the Son of God, came to take your place to die for your sin and to give you his righteousness. We call that the great exchange. He takes your sin to the cross and dies. You take his righteousness to heaven to live eternally with him. Now, let me tell you a story a testimony of a great preacher of the 19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I love his sermons. In fact, you can find all of his sermons online. You can read them. There's no recording of them. They were on cassette tape. That's 19th century. I'm just kidding. They were on 8-track. This is... This is All right, this is taken from his autobiography. So this is how Spurgeon was saved. This is his testimony. I'm going to read this to you. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning. While I was going to a certain place of worship, when I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up, from, up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to the text for the simple reason he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, Isaiah 45, 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now look and don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just a look. Well, a man needn't go to college to to learn how to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a little child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of ye are looking to yourselves It's no use looking there. You will never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God. So some look to God the Father. No, no. Look to Him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text this way. Look unto me, I'm a sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm a hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm a sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me, look unto me. Well, when he had gone about that length, 
and managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger, just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart and said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit about my personal appearance before. (laughs) However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you do obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look, look, look to Jesus. You have nothing to do but to look and then to live. Well, I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I'd been waiting to do 50 things that day. But when I heard the word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. And now I can say, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains lose all their guilty stains lose all their guilty stains and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains would you stand with me and just sing this beautiful old hymn The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Wash all my sins away, wash all my sins away, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying Lamb, Thy precious blood shall never lose its power Till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. Sing it out. Be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. 
one more. Ever since by the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeem me, and shall be till I die, and shall. Be till I die and shall be till I die. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Would you just pray with me? Father, that you would make a way for us to be redeemed out of our own sin, out of the death and blindness, that you would call us to redemption in you and call us to faith. It's humbling, God, that I did not save myself, but you saved me. When I was not worthy to save, you saved me. As you continue to pray, you folks that would not call yourself a believer, but today you've looked on Jesus. Simply look, talk to God to say, I believe you have saved me because of the precious blood of Jesus poured out on the cross for my sin. I believe I have the righteousness of Jesus now. And I look forward to going home one day in relationship with you fully to heaven to see you face to face, Jesus. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.